He watched the lamplight make weird designs on the walls, illuminating his breath, floating like puffs of fog before him. It reminded him of the time he was hidden from his brothers in their grandmother's dairy and got locked in. He nearly froze. He checked his watch again. It was time. He wiped his hands on his pants and blew on them to warm them as best he could. He opened the door, making sure the lantern was covered. He adjusted the aerial. Placing the earphones on his head, he began sending his message. I really wanted to write about ordinary people. I mean, it's, I was reading these great books that were published in the 1950s, these various memoirs of people that were in the Norwegian resistance, but I was always interested in ordinary people. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustville, and today I am so happy to be joined by J.L. Oakley, author of the novels The Quistling Factor and The Yosing Affair. And the thing about your historic characters is that they are like we're going through an historic time right now. We don't think of it as an historic time, but we are. Award-winning author J.L. Oakley writes historical fiction that spans the mid-19th century to World War II, with characters standing up for something in their own time and place. Her writing has been recognized with the 2006 Surrey International Writers' Nonfiction Award, a 2013 Bellingham Mayor's Arts Award, the 2013 Chanticleer Grand Prize, the 2014 First Place Chaucer Award, the 2015 Willa Silver Award for Timber Rose, and the 2016 Geth Grand Prize for the Yossing Affair. When not writing, she demonstrates 19th century folkways in schools and at the San Juan Island National Park. Today, I'll be talking with Oakley about her novels, The Yossing Affair and The Quisling Factor. So can you start by telling us about the circumstances that Norway faced during World War II? I'm particularly interested in the Norwegian resistance movement. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, when I began my research, I was reading Time magazine and Newsweek from the 1940s, and it seemed like almost every week there was an article about Norway. But when I began looking into contemporary stuff, I found hardly anything. No one talked about it. So to make things short, they were invaded simultaneously on several major ports on April 9th, 1940. And... Um, they, it took another about a month and a half for the Germans to advance up through the valleys all the way up to the top. But generally, all the ports were totally, um, you know, they were totally um, secured by the German forces. And so 
resistance began almost right away. I mean, there was fighting in the middle of the valleys going up through the center. I've seen some memorials dedicated to that. But some of the first things that happened, a lot of people jumped in boats and fled. Uh, they would go to Shetland. One made it all the way to New York City. Um, and so resistance began by first getting away and then later coming back to be part of the resistance. Uh, nothing, it, I always tell people resistance was organic in the beginning. It's sort of like, hey, let's get together and we're going to find some way to uh, resist against the, the Germans. And the sad thing about that is that they just didn't get how organized and in some ways extremely cruel in the way that uh, the Germans went about this. And probably for about a year and a half, they kind of tolerated, um, you know, Norwegians kind of being, you know, not getting in line with them. Um, the National Sommeling was the Nazi party, which was very small at the time, but after a while, things increased, and uh, the, you began to have, um, you know, more people joining, because mainly that's one way you could get work. So um, I write about a couple incidents in, in both my novels. One of them is Ulison, which happened in uh, February of 1942. This traffic that was going back and forth uh, to the Shetland and parts of Scotland were being organized by the British. They felt that this North Sea traffic was going to be, um, you know, it was important. So um, they were found out by, um, by infiltrating this group uh, in Ulison and a number of about 30 young men were arrested. I don't think there were any women in the group. And that was sort of the beginning of the signaling that the Germans were not going to start playing nice. And the final one uh, was when the teachers went on strike on February 5th, I believe that's the date. Uh, and they were not going to um, go along with Nazifying the schools. So um, resistance became pretty well busted up during the 1942, but this was happening on the continent as well. But eventually, the different groups began getting organized. So on the civilian side, you had Seaborg, which uh, under which the church, uh, labor, uh, I think education, a couple other, I think even hospitals, um, there were people in the resistance that would provide medical service to those in the resistance. And on the other side was Milorg. And that group was totally dedicated to, um, you know, resisting in a military fashion. And eventually they started getting help from, uh, from Great Britain through SOE Norway. So SOE, Special Operations Economic Executive, was something that Churchill put together pretty quickly, and Norway was part of that. So you've, you've shared a, an awful lot of history with us there uh, about the events in Norway during World War II. But in order to tell readers about this history, obviously you've created these historical thrillers, mm -hmm. um, the, the Yossing Affair and the Quisling Factor. And your main character is Tor Haugland. Uh, can you tell us more about this main character and how you use him to share this history with readers? Well, one of the things that I found was that uh, very actively, uh, so people are fleeing and a lot of them are ending up in England. So when you first arrive from Norway, and they were very interested, the British were very interested in talking to Norwegian refugees. You went through patriotic school. So I knew that one of the things that they were looking for was someone who was educated, possibly, 
uh, especially if you're going to be going into intelligence. And someone who could speak English, that would be a plus. My character speaks German. So he was a student at the University of Oslo. Uh, He loves history and literature and stuff like that. And um, but when the Germans invaded, um, he was among several people that began to consider resisting. And mainly it was through his father. His father was a professor at the University of Oslo, and he began to be one of the beginning of professors protesting against the rules at the university. And uh, he's arrested and then he dies of a heart attack. Um, The Gestapo starts looking for all the sons. So that's how it sort of started. Hoglund ends up in, he flees to Scotland and he's singled out as someone who can be trained to do this. So he's in an organization called XU. It means unknown. And um, it was part of the intelligence. So it was started on its own. Later, it becomes associated with SIS, which is the Secret Intelligence Service of Great Britain. And there was things going on on there. So his, um, his backstory is that um, they think he's dead, the most of the family. He's not allowed to because of an incident that happened. Um, he's not allowed to get in touch with his family. He has an older brother, Lars Hawkland, who's eight years older than he is, and he's very active in the org. Um, and I, I've developed that character because I wanted to show, I really wanted to write about ordinary people. I mean, it's, I was reading these great books that were published in the 1950s, these various memoirs of people that were in the Norwegian resistance. But I was always interested in ordinary people. And so I interviewed a lot of people in my community. Where I live in Bellingham, Washington, Whatcom and, and Skagit County and King County, that's where Seattle is, So many Norwegians came here after probably 1900 for the fisheries and logging. A lot of them came after World War II, and those are the people I interviewed. So um, I have someone who's dedicated. Um, He's got a lot of backstory because his brother was at Olesen, and then he he had an uncle and aunt at Telebog, which is another piece of this tragedy of the occupation of Norway. So that's sort of the beginning of it. And um, when he arrives, well, the other piece is that he knows how to sign. And I wanted to tell this story because one of my heroes of the resistance is Conrad Bonnie Svensson. And he was the minister for the deaf in Norway. He signed all his sermons in sign. And uh, he was a very compassionate person. And it, during the... Um, probably from about 1890 on, they had a very strong deaf church and deaf schools throughout Norway, especially in Trondheim and in Bergen and in Oslo. And Conrad Benny Svensson would go around and meet with people in the resistance. He actually, at the end of the war, uh, was probably one of the highest people, like the top three in Norway. So I wanted to tell his story. So Hoglund has a deaf uncle who's an artist in Telebook because I wanted to tell that story. And then his ability to sign, and he's, he pretends to be a deaf fisherman, which is a whole nother story. Well, why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? Was that part of the Shetland bus um, campaign? Yes. Yeah, so Shetland bus um, originally was called the North Sea Stra- uh, Traffic. It started in Lunavo. 
And I had the great privilege of being driven up there two weeks ago by Billy Moore. Billy Moore's father, Jack Moore, worked on all the boats when they were fishing boats and when they were submarine chasers. And so he took me up to Lunavo. So Lunavo was selected by the British, I think, in 41, to be their site where they would um, launch these fishing boats. This is an all-volunteer organization. The young fishermen that manned these boats volunteered. And um, they started up at Lunavo. And there, there's a wonderful book called The Shetland Bus, which is uh, written by David Howith. And he was second in command uh, at in the Shetland Bus. So you had a few British officers, but generally they're all, they're all crewed by Norwegian fishermen. And their stories are absolutely epic. I mean, they're, these going against the North Sea in the winter is just brutal. And actually by uh, 1943, uh, they, had, they were losing boats and men. Uh, one was the Blea, and I've seen the monument to that in Bombolo, Norway, and they lost over 30 people in that one, a terrible storm. They, were, they had an agent on board, and they had a lot of refugees, and they all died. Um, so the weather got really bad. So um, the uh, Nemitz, or Admiral Nemitz, the U.S. Navy, um, he arranged for three submarine chasers to become part of the Shetland bus. It was the, <clears throat> the Hesse, the Hitra, and the Vika. And these three boats um, had many, many tours, no casualties, because they were designed to be in that rough water. So the Shetland bus, um, when you research something like this, I had, when I first started writing the novel, there was really no internet, really. I mean, I didn't even have a computer. I had to go up to Western because I've been working on this almost 30 years. And, um, but I got a lot of um, wonderful letters from curators. One of them in particular was from the Resistance Museum in Oslo. So he sent me the schedule of all the buses, as they were called. It was called the bus because it was so regular. And so it's like, we'll catch the bus. And um, I, this last time that I was in Norway, I heard many stories of people that were waiting for the bus. They're amazing stories. But anyway, so the bus worked all the way through the end of the end of liberation. And the Hitra, all the boats were de, you know, decertified or declassified, whatever they do at the end of the war. And the Hitra disappeared. The other ones I think ended up in junk, but they found the Hitra in the Baltic Sea, I think back in the 1990s, and it's been fully restored and you, it's made several runs to Shetland over the years. It's pretty remarkable. Well, it's clear hearing you talk and reading your, your novels that you've done quite a lot of research and, and you've had a chance to share some of that information with us. But I'm also curious to know more about your craft of storytelling and specifically of telling these stories through historical thrillers. Can you talk about why you kind of chose that genre to share these stories and how you utilize like the power of fiction in order to to teach people about this important history? Well, first off, I have a degree in history. So that was my first degree, uh, American history. And I had a pretty tough professor, Dr. Pre Spencer at Kalamazoo College, really taught me how to do research. And I ended up working at the Smithsonian as an intern and things like that. So um, I 
when I approached Yusing is actually the first book I wrote, but I, I didn't publish it until like six years ago or more. Um, but and I've written other historical novels, but I think um, going about telling a story because I didn't really realize I was writing a thriller. I was writing historical fiction, but I, you, you have to create your I work with historic uh, calendars for one. So you can find perpetual calendars that will have the correct date. And I fill them in with historic beats because all these stories have beats to them. They have something happened. I'm not going to, I'm not going to shy away from that. If there's a certain date that's really important, it needs to be there. And the thing about your historic characters is that they are like, we're going through an historic time right now. We don't think of it as an historic time, but we are. And back then, they're going through an historic time. So it's how a character reacts to the situation they're in. So in Norway, probably within the first few months, they began rationing. Uh, they had rules about passes. And anybody on the West Coast was considered being on a border. Now, if you lived in Oslo side or live in Trondheim and you're closer to the Swedish border, you would have a Gresson Pass. But if you're on the West Coast, you have a Gresson Pass too. And so some of the rules that are laid down, 50 mile fishing limit, you go beyond that and you get blasted out of the water, which is why it makes the story of the Shetland bus so amazing because these shipper, fishermen got the boats over to um, to Norway along the coast, mostly with no incident, but there were tragedies. Um, and so you, you, you have to know what is going on. And that's where I was fortunate when you write about this time period. A lot of people were alive. Most of them have passed. Although I'm working on a prequel now called The Brizzling Code. And my, my good friend, who's 98, grew up in Bergen across from the U-boats. And she has supplied me with all kinds of information. Um, so the interviews were really important to get an idea of daily life because your character is in this world and the people around him are in this world. And, you know, what would their roles be? I was excited to interview a gentleman who was a fisherman and I didn't really grasp that the first time I met him. I went back a second time because he was telling me details about nets and what they did, nets were made of, you know, sane, cotton sane back then. How did you take care of them? What was it like being on a boat? Um, and I didn't really have a, you know, I didn't have access to a submarine chaser, but I saw them. My parents lived near Annapolis, Maryland, so I would go down to the Naval Academy and look, look at stuff. But so the way I go about it is to, I, I think for using, I threw everything I learned about Norway and World War II into that novel, which is Televog, Olesen, um, all these different incidents that happen. It's in the backstory of my character. So I can, you know, that's part of the things that form him at present day in the story. And um, research is really important. I really am very careful about it because I have felt, and I'm very honored when people tell me that are Norwegian Americans, they tell me that I never knew this, or they come and tell me a story that they heard from a relatives, and it makes me feel good. I feel like I've done my, I've done my job. But yeah, it's you know laying out. I don't plot really, but the calendar helps how the story might go. 
This current story I'm writing about is starts in late February. It's the Shetland bus in fishing boats, not the ch submarine chasers. So I don't know about that. And actually, I was doing Google Earth at Lunavo before I ever knew I was going to have this extraordinary visit to go to Lunavo. It's a private home now and to see where the Shetland bus started from. So back then, there weren't things like Google Earth. But um, anyway, so the calendar helps. What, what is, how does my character react to it? You know, like in October 1944, uh, all the students were arrested at, uh, in Oslo for rioting, and a pile of them were sent over to uh, Germany. Uh, you also have the story of um, well, just all the different things that are happening. And, you know, how, how did Norwegians react to um, D-Day? They were excited. And, the, and especially the fall of Paris after the Allies took it over. They thought they were going to be liberated. And that did not come. Norway was on its own until, actually till May 9th. That is when the Germans formally um, surrendered. But they were capable, of the Germans, of going all the way for another six months. At one point, they had 400,000 soldiers in Norway, military personnel in Norway. And that was a place with a population of 3 million. Berlin had 3 million people in 1940. So the calendar helps. Uh, the other thing I found right off the bat, which makes me laugh today, was on my university, Western Washington University, over in the uh, <clears throat> kind of in the country section, nonfiction section on Norway and Scandinavia, there are two British naval spy books, literally developed for Norwegian agents going back into Norway. And it's just, the maps are incredible. The information on the roads, where to take the train, it's just amazing. So that was a big help too. But you have to approach your character. Uh, they're living in this time period, how they react to it, you know, what what are the ordinary things that I have to think about? And, you know, the stories keep coming. Um, I just heard a, an incredible story about uh, from a, a family member of one of my hosts. Um, I think it was her father-in-law was helping people what they called export. So export was part of Seaborg. And that would help refugees either go to Sweden, but if you could, get on a, get on a boat and go to Shetland. And um, she said that her, her, I think it's the father-in-law kept receiving these postcards and there would be lovely things like, oh, I had such a wonderful time. May I come again? And essentially what it was, was telling him that a party or people were coming and he would need to hide them before the Shetland bus came. So this area that I was in in Norway is about two hours south of Bergen. It's all these cluster of islands. It was the best place for the Shetland bus to come in there. And so he, he was doing it for quite a while. And then um, his wife got one of the postcards and thought, wow, you're having an affair. <laughs> so he did it a couple more times and his marriage was going to pot. So he told the, the overseers, the overseers there said that um, he, it was okay, he would stop. And he never told his wife and he told his kids after she passed away. <laughs> they were dumbfounded. Wow. Well, I wonder if, if you can tell us more about 
your family history and, and what interested you in writing about th- these things and how you became a storyteller? Well, I always tell people I started writing when I was in second grade with the Funny Bunny series. But, you know, I listened to a lot of stories growing up. My great-grandfather was a Union surgeon at the Battle of Gettysburg. I grew up on his journals uh, and later his letters um, that he wrote to a couple of people. I have stories on my my Nana's side, my mom's side, that go back to 1638 Newburyport in Massachusetts. So I had a lot of family stories kind of stirring around. But um, my mom introduced me to historical fiction that she loved. And I always was drawn to history. I was writing historical stories in fourth and fifth grade, even though I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> and then when I got my degree in history, I actually, uh, you could either teach or write a thesis. So I actually wrote a thesis on the Comanche Indians as prisoners of war. Because as a sophomore, I had got a chance to work with John C. Ewers at the Smithsonian for a sophomore spring there. Um, and so storytelling, well, where do I go with that? I think the thing that may have sparked this, I tell people because Yosing is the first book I wrote. I've written about the Civilian Conservation Corps here in Washington State. I've written about the early uh, hiking clubs that climbed our mountains here. 50% of them were women. And I've also written about San Juan Island and Hawaiians because I went to school in Hawaii for and lived there for about eight and a half years. But I, the thing I think that may have stuck in my brain, I was a student in France, uh, 66, 67. And the first part we were in Vichy before we went down to Clermont-Ferrand where the university was. And there was a plaque in the, in the main part of uh, Vichy it was recovering from its terrible uh, reputation from World War II. Um, but this plaque was dedicated to the 25 students who were shot by the Gestapo. I turned 21 in France. And I think that I think that always stayed in the back of my head. So I tell people, I dreamt about a man in the snow surrounded by German soldiers. And that's how Yussing came about. And so the next step was, well, I guess I better start reading. So I hit the library and uh, found a way to interview people that were members of the men's Nordic uh, choir here in our area. So that's that's sort of how it started. I think I was always writing stories since I was a little girl, but this became almost like a thesis. My bibliography is huge. My notes are detailed, just as I was taught at Kalamazoo College. And in addition to writing historical characters, you also act as one, I suppose, at San Juan Island. Oh, National. yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, I started doing hands-on history with kids. Uh, I was trying to get a, I realized I was, I'm an enrichment teacher, not a classroom teacher, but I'm reading endorsed too. And it was subbing and never getting a job, but the best job I had was working with kids. I had my own workshops and then I did a stint with our local Bellingham school district. But I was asked by the uh, then um, head of the um, history over there at San Juan Island to write the Pig War curriculum. Now, Pig War uh, sounds very funny and it is funny because a pig died. It was a British pig shot by an American. But the real issue was in the Treaty of 19. 
1846, they determined the boundary between Canada, what was then not Canada, but still British territory, and the United States. And uh, they forgot to talk about the water boundary, which is between Vancouver Island and uh, what was then Washington Territory. So when the pig was shot, it caused a big kerfuffle. But uh, it was all decided that they would have a committee decide where the boundary was. In the meantime, for 12 years, the Royal Marines were in the upper end of San Juan Island, and then down at the other end was American camp, which at the time was run by Georgie Pickett of Pickett's Charge. So he was here in my town. His house is still here in my town. But anyway, so uh, they had a celebration one year. It's been 23 years now, I think, or 24. Uh, The flagpole at English camp, it's one of the few places, if not the only place in the United States where a British flag is allowed to fly. It's a symbol of cooperation and gentle, um, you know, agreeable when the agreement was made where the boundary was finally. So they had a big celebration. I started going out as Miss Libby in um, teaching 1860 curriculum. And it's, it's been the best time. I've had more fun doing that. But, you know, when I wrote this novel called Mischievous, which means captive in Chinookwawa, which was a trade language here, um, you, when you get to put on the clothing of that period, that really helps you um, understand how characters move, especially, you know, especially a woman. I mean, I've tried on other things. I've tried on what women wore to climb mountains. Women climbed mountains in pants with a skirt on. They had to do it. They had to wear a skirt, and then mm-hmm. they could have pants underneath it if they hit the glacier. <laughs> well, can you uh, just? I know you already talked a little bit about what you're working on, but uh, what can readers expect from you next? Well, I do hope to have this Brizzling Code out this September, and one of my. Um, so my character, Hoglund, he's two years younger, and it's only a very brief line or two that's mentioned in the Yusing Affair that he was down there. He, the character was born there, so he knows Bergen. And actually, Bergen has a, a very distinct accent because um, in the, they were associated with a lot of trade with the Hanseatic um, League, which is out of Hamburg. And so because of mountains, they were always on the sea where they didn't, um, it was difficult. There's no trainers, anything. It's all by ship and boat, uh, you know, in the early history. So they didn't really were totally, you know, aligned with Oslo and that, that part of the world. So they have a distinct um, accent. But he's down there. Um, we're getting into trying to get information on the U-boat. So they began expanding the U-boat pens. Um, the first plans were laid out, I think, in very early 1942, and then they start um, seriously building them. And again, having my friend um, being there during that time, she was a young woman, uh, she could tell me s- stories about it. So his job is to go there um, and get 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 the trans- the transformers are really important. So this time around, I have been so fortunate to be in contact with amazing historians. One is an expert on U-boats, which I know nothing about. I feel like I can talk about it. I have my spy map that shows where everything is, where all the U-boat bases are going in in the early history. And then uh, what I'm working on right now, I visited the Gestapo Museum in Bergen, and I'm trying to get a character correct for his rank and, and who he is. 
So um, this time around, it's, it's just been amazing. But my character is there. And once again, I found an amazing real person. I think the pronunciation is Bernd Schiele. And he was, a, he was a teacher of the deaf in Bergen. And um, he, he taught the kids, but he also was a courier for Milorg. And unfortunately, he was found out and later tortured to death. But he's a hero, and so I've created a character based on him. So my, my character, again, is dealing with deaf culture uh, in Norway because he can sign. He's not pretending to be deaf. He's working as a in a draft room because I've always said that he knew how to draw like his uncle. And so he's working in a draft office at one of the shipyards that looks right out on the, the U-boat base. Well, Janet, um, it's been such such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I really, really admire the work that you do and all the effort that you're putting into it. Well, thank you. And you know, the, the rewarding part, um, I had a wonderful re reader email me through my website about two or three weeks ago, and he said, you know, he read both the books, and he said, I felt compelled to go to Televoke. And I did go to Tolavog. It's very moving how this little fishing village was wiped out because these agents coming on the Shetland bus had gotten a gunfight with two Gestapo agents and they wiped the village out. But um, I, that really struck me that someone would take the time to go out there. It's about a, about a, almost a 90 mile, you know, 90 minute ride out there. It's, you have to, it's, it's beautiful, very strange. Um, really interesting geography geology out there but that was that was a wonderful thing to have someone tell me that they felt compelled so i felt like i'm doing i'm doing service and norwegian americans have told me that too because they say our parents grandparents did not talk about this and they want to know yeah definitely it's an important work and, and congratulations uh, on all that success whether it's anecdotal or through many of your many awards um yeah you're doing wonderful work. Thank you. So thanks, thanks again for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Well, this was, um, so I'm just collect recording all the interviews. This was the last one for my fall season. Nice. So um, I'm going to get to work now editing the audio, mm -hmm. and I'll send something out next month with a schedule and uh, the finished You said audio. you could have audio. Do you want some pictures? Uh, no, I don't need any. Okay.